Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. This morning I was talking about somebody by the name of Tim. Most of the conversation that I had with Tim was on a open forum. Looks like my volumes are low here. It's on open forum. So uh, I don't uh, see any reason why I couldn't mention his name. He mentioned my name when he responded to what I posted. I'm getting people sending me messages, so I thought I'd take a look and see if it's anything I need to look at. I don't we're okay. So I guess we're being heard. But anyway, uh, Tim it was on Facebook group, a home church group, that uh, is, uh, you know, they see something wrong with the modern church and they think that we should meet in homes instead. But they seem to have no knowledge of what the early church was doing. They're certainly not doing what the early church was doing. There's no real comparison between what they're doing and what the early church was doing. Uh, as a matter of fact, if we wanted to do a comparison, what they are doing is more like what some of the Pharisees were doing. Now, the Pharisees, of course, were a political party in the kingdom of Judea, which was a byproduct, so to speak, I guess, an offshoot of the kingdom of Israel. When the kingdoms kind of divided up, I mean, originally Israel had no king. Then they wanted to have a king. And God says to Samuel, through Samuel, that you can have a king, but if you have a king, he's going to take and take and take and take and take and take. And then when you cry out, I'm not going to hear you. And that that's a pretty serious warning. God's not going to hear you. And of course, Jesus talked about the same thing, talking about their their deal of Corbin was making the word of God to none effect, and the same word Corbin is also translated chair, uh, uh, treasury. It means sacrifice, and your sacrifices go into the treasury to operate the kingdom of Judea, which was the kingdom of God. And Jesus came to take the kingdom away from them and give it to another. That's what it says right there in the scriptures. And Tim is a big one for scriptures. So we'll just refer to him always as Tim. And somebody thought I was a little hard on Tim. Uh, but then, again, maybe Tim needed to be hard on. Somebody needed to be hard on Tim. Because <laughs> Tim is very confused about Christianity and what Christianity is. And, and it's not unique to poor Tim. It, most people are confused about Christianity. And so, anyway, I won't go over everything I said this morning. But... Uh, now, he's saying that he did not assume anything. Yeah, see, so originally I sent him information about the early church I was organized in tens, and then he wrote back and quoted what I said, uh, where in, and, uh, you know, which I said the early church was organized in small groups of ten families at Christ's command, as Christ commanded. And he says, where in scripture is that? Well, he went to my article, and it says right there in bold print, it's down a little ways, 
But right there in bold print, I set the scene in the article. It's, the article is an essay uh, discussing the fact that Christ commanded that his disciples make the people sit down in tens, hundreds, and thousands before there was going to be any loaves and fishes. And there were 5,000 men and their families. That's a big deal. 5,000 men and their families have to organize themselves in tens, hundreds, and thousands. It's right in Mark 6. It says it right there. You know, I studied the Bible for years and hardly ever even noticed that. But it's pretty significant. And But then as I began to read more and more of the Greek and the Hebrew, I began to realize this. Of course... Now, by the time I went back and was reading the Greek and Hebrew, I'd already realized that everything I was taught, pretty much, was misleading. It wasn't all untrue, but the way it was presented is misleading. I was raised in the Catholic Church. And I've been to lots of Protestant churches. I've spoken in Protestant churches. I know lots of Protestants. I've been invited to seminars to speak to Protestant ministers, specifically to Protestant ministers. Uh, and I don't like the word Protestant, but that's what people go by. But they were protesting the way the Roman Church was set up. Well, the Roman Church came down to us through Constantine. It's very clear. They even say so, like I said, in court cases. That's what their claim is, is that they came down from Constantine. They they say they're the Church of Christ, and they say they have a Pope, and they say that oh, all the Popes use the name Pope, and that's, of course, just simply not true. Nobody used the Pope until Pope Gregory. And he refused to use it, and then he died, and then they put it on him anyway. At that particular time, though, because he refused to take the name of Pope, the ones that were trying to get him to take the name of Pope went out and picked another Pope. Who would use the name Pope? Father. That's what Pope means, Father. But Jesus said, call no man father. Of course, he wasn't referring to the Pope because the Pope wasn't around. What he was referring to is the Emperor, who was the Patronus, our Father who art in Rome. But Jesus didn't say, pray to our Father who art in Rome. Jesus said to pray to our Father who art in heaven. And that's how you pray. That's how you apply for what you need. Now, you're sitting down in congregations of tens, hundreds, and thousands because Christ commanded that his disciples organize the people in that fashion. It's very clear that the Essenes were organized in that fashion. And I quoted uh, just one book, uh, but there's many quotes and many references to the tens in the article that I gave. But I quoted one one book to Tim, showing that all the Levites and the uh, Jews... And the synagogues, all synagogues were ten families. That was traditionally all synagogues were ten families. And it had been that way for thousands of years, even before Jethro, people were doing that. That's how they organized. The Greeks did it. Uh, Romans did it uh, early on. The hearths of the Romans were ten families, generally speaking. I mean, they weren't restricted. I mean, it could usually you weren't considered a synagogue until you had ten families. You know, ten heads of household, the elder of that family, represented you in the congregation of ten, and that's called a synagogue. But the synagogues that were connected to the temple at that particular time in history, most of those synagogues were part of a system of Corbin, 
that compelled the offerings of the people. You signed up and you were expected to pay in. If you didn't pay in, the right hand of government would know about it. But Christ said, don't let the right hand know what the left hand is doing. Because you're not to mix that. The, and he said to his apostles that I'm going to appoint unto you a kingdom, but you're not to be like the kingdoms of the Gentiles who exercise authority one over the other. And of course, we know what that means, right? Everybody should know what that means. That means that we're to live by faith, hope, and charity. That if there's a need in your community, then that's brought to the congregation, and the congregation fulfills that need. You know, if you lose your job, if you break your back or whatever, they help you out. We do it with all kinds of people in the community and we would do it with the people who sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and we would put together the resources so that we could do it for them and we would use those resources for other people. We can use them for other people but if things get really bad, we'll shut the door and only use it for the people that are in the network, generally speaking. I can't make any rules up about that because that would be me exercising authority one over the other. But just looking at the parables of Christ, who talks about the foolish virgins who run out of oil and they need need to be let in afterwards, and they say no, or the people who don't put on the wedding garments, whatever that means, they're tied up and cast out. And they knock, but the door is not opened unto them. So these are policies that are explained in parables by Christ, but I can't make up rules about them. So Tim quoted the fact that I said the early church was organized, like it says in Mark, and and we don't just rely on that single thing. Like some people responded and said, well, why are you projecting Jewish traditions on the apostles? In the early church. Because all the early church were Jews. For the most part, all the early church was Jews. So the very first... I mean, the people getting baptized on Pentecost, those were all Jews. They were getting cast out of one system and entered another system. And there is absolutely no reason on God's green earth to imagine that all these Jews suddenly abandoned the ideas of the tens, hundreds, and thousands. And of course, if you read Jethro and all these other early fathers... uh, you realize, oh no, they were still doing that. That doesn't mean you'd come across a congregation that was 15 families. Certainly you could do that. But the idea that they were doing anything other than that, where do you get that? You're just making it up. And you say, well, no, they're, they're trying to insinuate that if if they don't specifically repeat it over and over again that all the congregations are set up in the combination of 10 that they weren't doing it. Well, why would they have to keep repeating it over and over again when it had been a tradition already for thousands and thousands and thousands of years? <laughs> so why, why wouldn't they keep doing that? And then we do have... very. I mean, how many of the Gospels mention the Blessed Virgin? But you all believe that. Or at least a lot of you do. Maybe you don't. Some of you probably don't. But there are things that are mentioned in one Gospel that are not mentioned in another. So if if we looked up Mark and uh and 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 tried to find out where does they do they mention that well it like I said it's in Mark six at least and there are other places that put it and of course you like I said you can go back to Exodus eighteen twenty five and you can see it and it's in there. 
But one of the things that we do know is like in Luke twelve fifteen it says, And he said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not of abundance of the things which he possesses. Well, most people don't understand covetousness. They think covetousness and covetous practices is like you're trying to get your neighbor's wife or I guess his pickup or something like that. But desiring the benefits of society, of civil society, benefits, by the way, of enrichment, you know, like free school and health care and take care of my parents for me. Desiring that, that is a covetous practice. Just by the definition of covetous. Now, one of the things I kept saying is kind of a no-brainer. Well, yeah, I didn't know all the things that I know today when I was going to St. Joseph's College back in 1962 and 63 and studying this, my Greek and Hebrew and Latin and studying the Bible. I didn't know all these things. Did I figure it out back then? No. But not coveting thy neighbor's goods, I figured that out pretty quick. You know, I, I, I didn't gamble. Uh, because I realized that when you're gambling, you know, everybody puts out a, a quarter and everybody draws a card. You're hoping you beat your neighbor. You hope you get his quarter. <laughs> That's coveting your neighbor's goods. By definition. So, I, I didn't gamble. My mom liked to gamble. She didn't gamble to excess, but she liked to go to the gamble and slot machines and stuff like that. I mean, she only did it, I don't know, maybe a handful of times that I know of. I think she did a little bit more when I was gone from the house and my dad passed away. But And she might have done it a little bit on the Internet. But um, she didn't have a gambling problem. But she said that, well, farmers gamble. When they plant seed in the ground. No. Farmer takes a chance when he plants seed in the ground. He puts seed in the ground and hopes it rains. That's a chance. It's not gambling. Gambling, I mean, you could say it's gambling, but it really doesn't qualify. Gambling is when, you know, he he wants, you know, like... When his neighbor's sowing seeds, he wants some of those seeds to blow over into his field so that he will get some of the value of those seeds. I mean, again, it's about the fact that you're sitting there, you play the lottery, and you're hoping everybody else in the lottery loses their dollar. I don't know what a ticket costs, but, and you get their dollars. That's what you're, you're praying for that in your heart and in your mind. Not a good thing. That's that's coveting your neighbor's goods. But it's also coveting your neighbor's goods to sit down and consent with people <coughs> that want to have gain at other people's expense. And of course, Proverbs tells us that. If, if sinners entice and say, let's all have one purse, consent not. You know, and because, why? Because it's a covetous practice. You want to all have a one purse like social, socialism and You'll benefit. Tontine is is that, you know, like maybe the other guys will die and I'll get their money. <laughs> you, know, you don't want to do that. That's coveting your neighbor's goods. 
So anyway, uh, the point is, is that uh, Tim is having a difficulty understanding what I'm talking about. And he's, and he's disagreeing with what I'm talking about. So I thought I'd look up and see if I can find a few other quotes. But that's moving extremely slow too. I'll just let that do its searching. I don't know. There must be something going on in the background that's keeping everything from operating <laughs> very fast. I can't even get back to the original page where Tim was talking. Okay. So he says, where in Scripture, and I told you it's Mark 6, and the voluntary gathering in uh, hundreds and by fifties through groups of tens was in it, to implement a righteous system of Corbin through the hands of Jesus, disciples, that would make the word of God because it was accomplished by love and charity. It would make the word of God to effect as opposed to the Corbin of the Pharisees which made the word of God to none effect uh, because it operated by love and charity where the Corbin of the Pharisees operated by force and fealty where you were subject. You had to pay in because you had signed up for the system. He says this is a bunch of twisted and assumed rhetoric. There's no assumed rhetoric. Jesus said the Corban of the Pharisees was making the word of God to none effect. And Corban means sacrifice. And so the sacrifice of the Pharisees made the word of God to none effect. Why did it make the word of God to none effect? Because it depended upon forced offerings. It was legally forced offerings because they only forced the offerings of people who signed up. And we go through and show the history that of Herod. That's what he was doing. And the same history we find in the Corbin of Rome, because they had Corbin too. I mean, Corbin's mentioned in the, even in the Koran. They talk about Corbin. Uh, the early church had Corbanus, uh, which was a box that they put the offerings in, the sacrifices of the people to take care of the needy and poor of society. And that box was called the Corbanus because it held the Corbin. There's, there's no assumption here. It's just the way it works. It's the way they took care of the need. The church did this for thousands of years. Doesn't do it anymore. FDR took over. FDR said, oh, we'll take care of the poor. We'll set up welfare. We'll set up CCCs. We'll set up Social Security. If you have a number, we'll take care of you. But you have to pay in. That's the Corbin of the Pharisees. That's what makes the Word of God not effect. That's not an assumption. That's the definition of the words. That's what they do. You're either operating by faith, hope, and charity or you're operating by force and fear and fealty because when you sign up, you're now subject. It's not twisted. What's twisted is the fact that you think, or Tim thinks, I guess. I don't know what Tim thinks. He says that's twisted. But I can tell you this, that modern Christians thinks it's okay to covet your neighbor's goods as long as you do it to government. But government is men who exercise authority one over the other. And Christ said, it's not to be that way with you. He said it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And where in the Bible do you find that Christ says to ask Caesar, pray to Caesar to take away from your neighbor so that you can have more stuff? 
And then he, and Tim writes, I'm supposed to believe this? You're supposed to believe that thou shalt not covet, and it's not okay to covet just because the government takes from your neighbor. Because that would be like the governments of the Gentiles who exercise authority one over the other to provide you with benefits. And Christ said it's not to be that way with you. You're supposed to believe that because that's what he said. And we show you where he said it. It's not not twisting anything. It's just what part of not to be that way with you do you not understand? <laughs> it's simple. Should be a no-brainer. It's not a no-brainer, and people are confused because they have been listening to a false narrative that they call the gospel of the kingdom that is not really the gospel of the kingdom. And he says, apparently Luke failed to identify this in Acts. What do you mean? Apparently Paul and the other apostles setting the foundation of the church failed to identify this in all the letters. Oh, everybody knew it. Why would he have to repeat it? That the tens, hundreds, and thousands was used by Greeks. It was used by early Americans in the colonies. There were some American religious groups that organized themselves in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. That, that's just historically. Of course, now, they've taken a lot of that stuff out of history because they've taken a lot of things out of history, but uh, which we've gone over in lots of other programs. And I mean, that you could fill volumes of shows about uh, the fact that that's just absolutely common. So he says, all around the globe, there are believers who only have a Bible. So, what does that have to do with anything? <laughs> They will observe everything Jesus commanded without, he says, without this finagling of many things. What things were finagled? He commanded them to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. And there's no reason to believe that he didn't by anything that Paul says. Anything that Paul says. Anything that Peter says. But there is things that Peter says that through covetousness, you will be made merchandise, human resources, slaves, where you have to work without pay. Done deal. You already work without pay. Some 20% of the time, some 30% of the time, some 40% of the time. My dad used to be 50% tax bracket, so he said, until July 1st, I work for the government. Because half of everything he earned went to the government. It didn't go to him. That's slavery. And like I started at the beginning of the show this morning with, you know, a quote from Goth, none are more hopelessly enslaved than those who falsely believe that they are free. You are not free to covet your neighbor's good because Jesus came. You know, uh, you're not free to go back into the bondage of Egypt where you 20% of your labor belongs to the government. You're not free to do that. You can... You are free to do it, but you're not free to do that and claim to be doing what Christ said or what God said or what Moses said or following the scriptures. Because the scriptures, God said, never go back to that Egypt again. And like I always say, he's not talking about visiting the pyramids. He's talking about going back to the bondage of Egypt. Most Christians have gone back to that bondage. And where did it start? FDR. 
well, it didn't really start there, but it really took a huge leap and jump there with FDR when you started signing up for a system of social welfare that's going to provide for you and your neighbor and your parents and and the needy of society through a socialist system of forced offerings, forced sacrifices, forced contributions. Let's put it that way. Maybe people don't want to call it an offering, but if it's a free will offering, we call it an offering, and that's reasonable. If it's a forced offering, we call it taxes. Now, if you owe the tax, you pay the tax, but the reason you owe Social Security is because you signed up for Social Security. If you never signed up for Social Security, you wouldn't owe any Social Security, would you? I mean, that just stands for a reason. Did you have to sign up? Well, we've written volumes on that. Do you have to sign up now? Well, actually, the head of the Social Security Department says if you (laughs) don't want to sign up, don't sign up. But you can't hardly do anything without that number, so you probably are going to have to sign up. Maybe some of you could find ways to survive without that, but I'm not interested in surviving. I'm interested in serving Christ, doing what Christ said to do. Are you interested in doing what Christ said to do, or do you just want to do what you want to do? And then pretend that Christ said to do it, or the apostles said to do it. We give you ample, in the article on... The tens, we give you all kinds of reasons to show you that, no, no, it's it's pretty clear. And uh, so anyway, I wrote him back because of his comments and I said, I understand that you do not want to admit that your assumptions are in error. And the assumption is, is that somehow or other you don't have to organize into tens and that you don't have to take care of one another through charity there is not a lot of repetition of the explanation of the ten scriptures because it was not needed. Because everybody knew it. Everybody had been doing it for years and years. It was the most common form. You know, Bruce, uh, I trying to remember his last name, can't remember it right now, but uh, Enterprise of Law, he wrote Enterprise of Law. You can look that up. Uh, his first name is Bruce. I, I'm bad at names. I can't remember his last name says it was the most common form of government in throughout the history of man. Everybody knew about it then. Everybody didn't know about it now, but that's because, like I said this morning, before they dumbed down your children, they had to dumb down your grandparents' children and your great-grandparents' children and your parents' children. <laughs> so they stopped teaching history, but... You know, these are scholastic works that say that it's the most predominant form of government throughout the history of man is the tens, hundreds, and thousands. These voluntary systems of government. So, anyway, I I wrote back and explained that and I quoted, you know, the the world under God's law, the church under God's law, and uh, shows that synagogues were ten families. But, anyway... So Tim responded to that. I did not assume anything. I said, I understand that you do not want to admit that your assumptions are in error. Oh, I see. So he says that I said the assumption. His assumption is is that, that the church should be organized in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. I say that the church should be organized in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. He assumes that that command by Christ 
was insignificant. It was just for that day. 5,000 people and their families had to organize into the tens, hundreds, and thousands, and then they never had to do it again. Even though the command was not to those people, but to his disciples to make the people in general sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. So I don't, you know, he didn't go and discuss that, so I have to assume that he thinks that we, Jesus did not command us to sit down. <laughs> so that is an assumption. There's not a lot of repetition, like I said, in, in that explanation, but it is very common that that's what it was. And anyway, he goes on to say, I observed your twisting of the Bible to falsely claim a command from Jesus. Jesus commanded, that's what it says, commanded that his disciples make the people sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. He actually says hundreds and fifties because it was 5,000 people. He says, I have quoted you. You can't respond specifically, so you accuse and then change the subject to elders. And then he says, Ray is no command from Jesus. He must mean there is no command from Jesus on tens for believers gathering to build the one church. Well, actually, that is the command. (laughs) This is your second time to twist the Bible with claims from outside the Bible in convoluted and disconnected fashions. Your extra-biblical sources are used to justify complicated alternatives to the simplicity uh, and charity of Scripture. Well, no. (laughs) Not really. (laughs) It's very clear that uh, the apostles were talking, John, for one, talking about the synagogue of Satan. Because all the early... Christians, the very earliest Christians, the, the apostles, were all Jews. They all knew what a synagogue was. They all knew that synagogues were ten families. That it, They don't need extra biblical documentation to prove it because they knew it since they were little children. They knew it in their history. I read Exodus. Uh, they did this. And you can find all kinds of places where they, they talk about that that the families were organized in tents. And yet, there's extra-biblical things that confirm what I said. But I'm just going by what Jesus said, organizing the people in these ranks of tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. And early church fathers all talk about this. Not, I wouldn't say they all talk about it, but enough of them so. And why did they do it? So that Paul and the others could go and... Uh, organize themselves so that Paul would know who and where to take it. Now, as to being hard on, the fact is, is if you're not living by faith, hope, and charity, and you're actually praying to men, applying to men, prayers and application, applying to men who exercise authority by taking away from your neighbor and putting your children into debt, by borrowing trillions and trillions of dollars to then give everybody a stimulus check or take care of Social Security. Social Security has always been in debt. Always been in debt. Because the Supreme Court has ruled there is no division of funds. If the United States is in debt, Social Security is in debt. That's just it. 
There's no separate trust fund. There's no division of funds. That's the law. It's not an assumption. It's repeated over and over again in the law. If you read the act, you can tell that. So it's never, ever been solvent. It has always been uh, fundable by borrowing money against the future laborers who are going to have to pay the interest on the loan. Because that's what your income tax... Income tax doesn't provide any services from government. It's just paying the interest. And it's only paying the interest down a little bit. The, the loan is... Loans are going up and up and up and up. and you, I mean, it's in the news, like I say, every day. Trillions and trillions of dollars worth of debt. And yeah, you have to pay 20, 30, 40% of your income to the government because you're back in the bondage of Egypt. These are all these are just basic facts. But people don't want to see it. They want to believe they are free. They want to believe that they're actually doing what Christ said to do. That they are actually justify the complicated alternatives to the simplicity and charity of the scripture. The simplicity and charity of the scripture is that the early church took care of all social welfare through faith, hope, and charity. And the modern church does not do that. They take care of 80 to 90 to 100% of the charity in their community through men who exercise authority one over the other. But you can read in 6. 40. They sat down in ranks by hundreds and by fifties. And so he's probably trying to suggest that there wasn't in ranks of hundreds and tens, hundreds and fifties and thousands. But the early church was even, and most people don't want to believe this either. And that's why we have to go and show them the meaning of the word. So the fact is, people say that all they have is a Bible. They have a Bible in the language that they speak. If, if they don't, then they just have a book full of gibberish and they can't tell what it says in there. <laughs> but, the, yeah, they organized in these tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. And we go through, step by step, through the Greek so that people can see that. And now I'm not defaming the translations, but the fact is that the translations are not as accurate as they ought to be. But if you had the Holy Spirit, you would know. I mean, the reason I didn't go on offshoot, the, the point is, is that if you're not living by faith, hope, and charity, then, you know, you're not, uh, you're not doing it the way Christ said to do it. You're not doing the simplicity of charity. You're just not. So, you know, if you can go look at Luke 9.14. For there were about 5,000 men there. And he said unto his disciples, Make them sit down by fifties in a company. And they did so. And they made them all sit down. Now, if you go to the original Greek, which we do, and anybody in these foreign countries that could do this, they could see how this is laid out in the language. And... Even the word companies there, if you look at it in the Greek, this this was groups that would get together, ten guys. It's tithings. This is what tithings were. You've heard of tithings. We They were around in the early America. They were still around. They were around all through European history. Germans did it. Teutons did it. 
the the British did it, you know, the the Gauls did it. Why did they organize in these ten groups of ten? You even see the Roman centurions, which, you know, they'd gone a long ways down the road of corruption. They were already establishing shortly. Well, they were establishing it about the time of Julius Caesar, but before the first emperor, which was Augustus, they were they had these organizations of tens. The hearths were the original tens, but uh, they you see them repeated in their military. You know, I mean, even the word deans in the in in colleges and stuff were were uh, leaders of tens. The dechen. Uh, that's that's the it's Latin word for ten, deacon. It it actually derives in part from the idea that it was a minister of ten. Now language evolves over a period of time, but the idea that people organize in these tens to take care of the needy, the point is is not now if everybody organizes in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, now you're doing what Christ said. No. You're only doing what Christ said if you're taking care of one another through faith, hope, and charity. That's the simple part. The fact that they sat down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands is just showing you that it facilitates. I was at a meeting with somebody. I can't even remember his name. He's famous, famous guy. I went up and talked to him. Uh, but I can't remember his name. Like I said, I'm not good at people's names. But he he wanted to get people organized to become more active in this church type deals down in North Carolina, I think. And he told everybody to separate out and sit down in groups of ten. And everybody, you know, they're moving chairs and tables around and everybody's grouping down. And now, it wasn't heads of family. It was just everybody. They would get, each table had about ten people around it. I never sat down at one of those tables, I don't think. I walked around them and listened to the conversation and see what these people were thinking because I was interested in it. But it wasn't really, he wasn't really doing it for the same motivation. I was there because somebody had invited me to come there as an observer, so I remained an observer. I wasn't part of the group. But we see this again, so it was also in Luke. So Luke mentioned it in 9.14 and 9.15 of organizing the people in this way. And we know historically that this was it. The, the reason it seems so foreign to him is it's been deleted first by the Roman church who did not want you organizing in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. And I, in the book That Kingdom Come, I show you example after example of all kinds of cultures that do this, that they organize in this way. And, again, the key thing is not tens, but in small groups that are connected to other groups and connected to other groups. And they operated their system of charity through those groups. So, that's really important to understand why the church did that. And that's why I go in this other direction talking about the elders organized in the tens, hundreds, and thousands to facilitate a daily ministration. Because again, like I point out historically, and everybody should know it, I, you know, nobody just reads the Bible. They look stuff up in the dictionary. You, you can't just read the Bible. You have to know the meaning of words. 
You you can't even read unless you know the meaning of words. You've already, when you sit down and start reading the Bible, say you're 40 years old and somebody gives you a Bible and you sit down and you start reading it. What you're reading is dependent on what you've already looked up in dictionaries and other books that taught you the meaning of words. The problem is, is some of the words that you're reading in the Bible don't mean what you think those words mean. Religion was how you take care of the needy of society. And the, evidently the Pharisees were doing it wrong because there isn't a single word in the Bible about the religion of the Pharisees that is complimentary. The only time they talk about good religion in the Bible is when they say pure religion. And pure religion was taking care of the needy of society unspotted by the government. Because that's the word they use there for world is the one that means government. Constitutional order or system of government. Why? Because the governments of the world at that time had men who exercised authority one over the other called themselves benefactors but exercised authority one over the other and we were not to be that way. But people were that way. They shouldn't have been that way but they were that way and the Pharisees were that way. And so you had to do things differently when it comes to the Pharisees. <laughs> and Jesus condemned them for what they were doing. So, you know, if we if you look up the word exercise authority, one over the other, you'll find it mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Look again. Luke's talking about men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority one over the other. Those are the men who take from their neighbor to provide you with benefits. The benefactors who exercise authority one over the other. So, do people in the modern church go to men who exercise authority one over the other? And ask them for benefits provided at the expense of their neighbor and often because they borrow the money at the expense of their children. So it's cursing their children with debt. Do modern Christians do that? Of course, modern Christians would never do that, right? But they do do that. That's contrary to the teachings of Jesus. So now if you're not going to apply to those men who exercise authority one over the other for any social welfare benefits whatsoever because you know everything they give you is either borrowed from the, for, from the future of their children, your children, your neighbor's children, or it's forced, it's provided by forcing your neighbor to pay for it. And you can go read Matthew twenty twenty five, But Jesus called them unto him and said, Ye know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them. And they that are great exercise authority upon them. But he goes on to say, It's not to be that way with you. Mark 10.42 But Jesus called them to him and saith unto them, Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles 
In other words, the princes, the, you know, prime ministers, presidents, anybody who is a ruler, and the president certainly is a chief executive officer, so he exercises authority over the Gentiles, exercise lordship over them, tell them what they can do and what they can't do, and etc. And their great ones exercise authority upon them. We're not to be that way either, as he says in verse 43. And then Luke, I like Luke the best because he's much more descriptive. It's about as long as as uh, Mark, but it's more descriptive. And he saith unto them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship. The presidents, prime ministers, czars <laughs> exercise lordship over them. And they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. And so, he says, it's not to be that way with you. But the church should be, the appointed ministers of the church should be benefactors to the people, should provide benefits. That's the daily ministration, taking care of the needy of society through faith, hope, and charity. You should be doing that. That's what the church is supposed to be doing. The home churches often think, oh no, we don't need to do that anymore. Why? Because we got the government. You know, the rulers. The rulers of the nation. Gentile just means nations, other nations. Who exercise authority and they, one over the other and provide benefits. So we don't, we don't need to do that in home churches. We don't have to take care of, you know, social welfare and, if, you know, you need to go to, you know, if you need to get, Welfare, you go to the government and apply for welfare. I mean, I was shocked after coming out of the seminary and, and being confronted with some of the stuff going on that ministers actually have a, you know, in their desk by the phone, they have a list. I found more than one that does this. as a list of telephone numbers of government agencies that they send their constituents to when they have needs. You know, if somebody has as a widow or an orphan, they go find the government program that can help them. There's actually whole religions who help people get off the street by going and finding those services provided by men who exercise authority one over the other in the government of the other nations. And they send them to those people. They have them on speed dial, I guess. I don't know. That's not what Christ was talking about. That's not what we should be doing as Christians. That's, that's simple. Or if, if somebody doesn't have a coat, do you give them the name of a government agency? If they don't have a place to stay, do you call up the welfare office to, so they, they will pay your free rent? Do, do, you know, if somebody, Needs an operation? Do you take care of it through the church? Or do you send them to the men who exercise authority? If you send them to the men who exercise authority, that's a covetous practice. You know, that, that word benefactor is, is, you know, it's a Greek word. And it, it means benefactor. It's a title. It's specifically a title that's given to certain people. Uh, a title of honor conferred on such as had done their country's service. 
and upon princes equivalent to Sauter, Pater, or Patria. Well, Pater, Patria, that is, that is the Latin, and it's also Greek, for father. So, Sauter is savior. You know, like during the COVID, people got stimulus checks, and for some people, it actually saved them. So the Sauter was the potter of the government. The princes of the other nations. The princes of the Gentiles. See, Christians just early, it is absolutely clear that the early church did not partake of the free bread of Rome. That would have been eating meats, eating food. Is You know, he's not just talking about meat, cuts of meat. He's talking about bread that was sacrificed to the other systems of the world, the Corbin of Rome, the Corbin of the Pharisees that was making the word of God to not effect. Christians lived by charity. Their sacrifices were given to the ministers of their choice by charity. And I don't see the home church movement doing that. I see the home church movement mostly. I mean, I've been looking. There may be some out there. But most of them I see are just little social clubs where they all talk about and reassure each other that they're saved and that they're following the simplicity of the gospel of charity. But they're not. They're praying to the potters and patria, the sauters of the world to take care of their widows and orphans and needy of their society through men who exercise authority one over the other. And that's the work of iniquity because that's a covetous practice. Because you, they're, not, they're not giving you stuff out of their pocket. They're giving you stuff out of your neighbor's pocket. And you're not supposed to want anything that is your neighbor's. So I'm sorry, Tim. You do seem to be making assumptions. You do seem to be confused. But you're not alone. There's a lot of people confused. And we were told that a lot of people would be confused. There's opportunities to repent. There's opportunities to gather together. I don't care if it's the 11s and the 1100s. <laughs> There's nothing magic in the number. But small groups connected to other larger groups of small groups for the purposes of a daily ministration to take care of the needy of society through faith, hope, and charity. Like Paul said, like John the Baptist said, like Jesus said, like Moses said, that's loving your neighbor. Sending people to his house to force it. You know, I give the example of a local widow lady. She had been taxed double what she should have been taxed for the last 20, 30 years. I tried to get him to change that. I tried to get her to go down she could apply for it to be changed. She was afraid to go down, which is the very widow everybody should be helping. Finally, my son was able to make it happen. Brought her to the attention of a good tax man. It's hard to find. <laughs> and he said, this is a gross injustice. It should have never been. And he put it, rolled it back to where it was. But he could only go back so many years. So she paid out thousands and thousands of dollars. So that other people could have free school. She should have never had to pay up. Everybody around her was going to church while this was happening. Nobody did anything about it. Finally, our family were able to make it happen. 
And the injustices I've seen, widows had their homes taken away by the tax man because they couldn't pay the taxes. And, so, and they couldn't take, they had, you know, their husband died and left them with mountains of debt and children. And, and it, the system, and they said, well, they, they should go get welfare and they, they should go get this and they should go get that. But those are, you're telling them to go to men who exercise authority one over the other. You know, that that word, exercise authority, one over the other, what word do you think that is in the Greek? Now, you don't have to know the Greek. The Holy Spirit should tell you that we should not be coveting our neighbor's goods. I, I, I don't need to... I'm only using the Bible and showing you these words and showing you the history of the early church to help you with your unbelief. If you really believed the gospel, you would not want in any way, shape, or form to force your neighbor to contribute to your welfare. Too many say they're benefactors, but are not really. They're just exercising authority and taking what they want to take. So this exercising authority word, do you know what it is? Exosiazo, which is from the word exousia, excusia, depending on what you know pronunciation you want to use for the Greek. But exousia is the word that Paul says, let every man remain subject to the higher power. In, in Romans 13, we see it in Romans 13. And people say, well, that's the government. But the higher power is the original power. The original power was in the hands of the individual. Let every man remain. Actually, the word exousia in the Greek, if you read Aristotle, you read before Christ, after Christ, you know, I give examples in the book, the book, The Higher Liberty, as well as in the article, Romans 13, that that word, exousia, means the right to choose. I mean, right in the concordance, it says the power of choice. Liberty of doing as one pleases. That's what the word means. It doesn't mean government. It means liberty. And it's translated liberty in the Bible. And it was considered the strongest word in the Greek language for liberty at that time. So Paul is saying, let every man be subject to the higher liberty because all liberty is of God and there is no liberty but of God and anyone who opposes liberty opposes God. And if you oppose liberty for your neighbor to contribute to your welfare by choice, you oppose liberty. And you will go back into bondage. And you have. And and it's not an assumption, it's a fact. So people need to repent, turn around and go back the other way. So, until then, peace on your house and may God be with you. God bless. Join us on the network. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, 
Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.